interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you very much uh, for this invitation. I like to move around as I give a talk, so if I drift so far from the mic that you can't hear at the back, please just go like this ostentatiously, okay, and then I'll I'll know that that means you can't hear me. Um, So thank you again for the invitation. Uh, I said to my hosts here that I'm really impressed that you pulled out all the stops on the weather. And and so you're here nice and relaxed because uh, you've uh, uh, sent in your tax forms. Uh, And here we are. Uh, My topic is science, uh, atheist or Christian. Um, I hope many of you have had some of the uh, questions that I sent out uh, and that this will then help uh, to grease the skids a little bit for these thoughts. My son uh, was an undergraduate at Bates College, and uh, when, I, when he was getting ready to graduate a, a, a few years ago, um, I went to the uh, commencement, and the commencement speaker was Steven Weinberg. Steven Weinberg is a Nobel Prize winning physicist and uh, a very widely uh, um, recognized figure in the physical sciences, and by the way, also a very articulate writer and has written much in many uh, places, and New York Review of Books, and so on and so forth. So he was the speaker uh, for my son's commencement. Here is Simon, by the way, my son. I I thought I'd better give him a top billing here. Um, uh, And the gist of uh, Steven Weinberg's uh, message was to tell the students, uh, it's great you graduated. Uh, Your graduating from college here basically means that I must welcome you, he says, to the Enlightenment, that uh, your education removes from you the the shackles of superstition uh, that have held back uh, uh, humankind over the the years. He he talked about how how all religion is, is sort of medievalism, it's all superstition and so forth. And uh, actually, uh, for this particular speech, um, Islam came in for uh, the biggest criticism. This was not too, too long after 9-11, so perhaps that's the reason. But anyway, that made a change from Christianity, usually getting it in the neck, so uh, that was kind of nice. Um, and, uh, and that was his message. It was astonishing. Uh, but Steven Weinberg I use here as kind of an example of what we often hear from uh, very uh, outstanding and, and well-known scientists, uh, and it's, it's really to address the question, is he right, um, that I want to talk today. Uh, the popular view that, that science is atheistic, as, as Steven Weinberg is, is, is of course fed by high-profile atheist scientists like him, and he's not the only one. One can think of, of many others, and many, many science popularizers as well as scientists. But it's also often fed, I think, by Christian preachers. I mean, I think in many Christian circles, there is is an assumption that science is inherently atheistic, and and that's the message that gets fed from the pulpit. And and therefore, both sides of the argument, in a certain sense, are representing a view 
that faith and science are so incompatible that they must necessarily be um, at war with one another. Now, of course, there are other views, and, and, and some people, uh, for example, feel that there may be some merit uh, in religious faith. I'm, I'm talking slightly tongue-in-cheek here. Um, and, um, but yet, many of the people who take that view, and people in the sciences take that view, uh, also adopt a kind of separationist view. Uh, the, the idea that science and faith are, are talking about such different things that they really don't have anything to say to one another. And um, uh, the classic example I like to point to of that is the, uh, the work of Stephen Jay Gould, now deceased, but uh, another um, name that many, many people have heard of in the realm of uh, science popularizers who's written a great deal about paleontology and so forth. And he wrote a book called The Rocks of Ages, uh, where he, he put forward the view that science and religion are basically what he called non-overlapping magisteria. In other words, they talk about such different things in um, intellectual and human life that um, they never really talk, they never really overlap, and, and therefore, you know, religion can talk about religious things and science can talk about scientific things, and, and there isn't going to be an argument in his view, or at least there need not be an argument in his view. Uh, so the trouble with that is that... Um, Really, in a way, it does concede the point that science, science is atheistic. In other words, Gould's view, I, I would argue, is that science is atheistic, but perhaps it's not so comprehensive. And therefore, to achieve some kind of peace between, between science and faith, it, it's achieved by isolation. You take the two parties and you keep them separate, and therefore they can't fight. You know, when we have uh, brother and sister fighting into each other, well, what do we do? Send them to the opposite corners of the room. No, you're not going to fight anymore. Uh, and so the question is, are these sorts of responses true? Is, is, it, is it true in, in reality that science is at heart atheistic? And that's the question I want to address and try to bring some light to. Um, now, I want to offer a radical thought on this, and that is that I'm not just going to offer you my opinions. I want us to actually look at some of the evidence. What a radical thought. There are, there, are a whole, um, there are a whole slew of types of evidence we could examine to ask the, quest, ask the question, are science, is science inherently atheistic, and are science and faith so separate? And what I want to touch on today, very briefly, because I, I know that the format here is you're gonna, we're going to have some discussion later, uh, I'm going to uh, touch on some thoughts from the history of science. I'm going to talk about some of the philosophical underpinnings of science. I'll just show one or two things about the content of modern science and the mo modern demographics of science. But I want you to be very careful in, what, in listening to what I say, because this is, after all, a pronouncement of a scientist, that you make very sure to understand in pr pronouncements by this scientist, as you ought to for other scientists, uh, or in claims that might be argued on the basis of scientific re results. What is science and what is not? And I'll try to be clear about that. Because a big part of the problem, of course, with someone like um, Gould or someone like um, uh, Steven Weinberg is that they muddle and, dis and do not draw the distinction between what are basically philosophical uh, assumptions or philosophical opinions uh, and science itself. So I'm arguing that what 
we, what we all should be doing is conducting that very highly necessary part of scientific thinking, which is namely to distinguish what is established, what are the facts, from what is speculative. So try to do that for me, and you know, maybe in the, in the question time you'll have a chance to come back to me. Okay, so let's think first then about the history of science. I come from MIT. Uh, and, of course, you all know, maybe you don't know here at Cornell, but you all, you all ought to know that MIT is the high temple of science and technology in the city. <laughs> and as befits a high temple, we have architecture to match. We have Greek, uh, quasi-Greek temple architecture at MIT, um, as well as a lot of other crazy architecture now. Uh, but this original architecture, instead of these fluted columns, these fluted columns being topped by, you know, bacchanalian friezes of people having orgies, which is what, what real Greek temples have, um, instead of that, what we have at the top of our, uh, of our columns is a list of the names of heroes of science. And so there are around all of the uh, buildings at M MIT, at least ones of this vintage, these uh, heroes of science and technology. And so here's another set, and this, I could read this out, Boyle, Cavendish, Priestley, Dalton, Gay-Lussac, et cetera, et cetera. And here's, of course, Isaac Newton, but uh, Tycho Brahe, Galileo, Kepler, D'Alembert, Euler, and so on and so forth. And some of us at uh, MIT some years ago now decided that would be interesting to ask the question, how many of these names on the architecture of MIT are people who are actually Christians? And so it's hard to estimate, of course, but we did the best we could. And we come out with a number of between 50 and 60% of these people are, were actually Christians. Um, not all of them, you know, very devout, although many of them were, in fact, very devout Christians. And this is the first fact of history that I'd like to offer for our consideration. If science is inherently atheistic, if science and faith are inevitably at war because of that, it's very hard to understand why it is that such a large fraction of the heroes of science over history um, were in fact Christians. And part of what we did at MIT was to start to study some of these people in, in greater depth. And, uh, Here's one example of what I regard as a hero of science. I'm, I'm a plasma physicist, so I deal with Maxwell's equations every day. Uh, so here's my hero, um, James Clark Max Maxwell, who uh, was uh, uh, active in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, and of course uh, was the person first to mathematize the electromagnetic uh, theory. And he was a remarkable Christian in many ways. Scott uh, educated at Edinburgh U University and then later at Cambridge. And while he was an undergraduate at Cambridge University, he wrote a lot of things. But one of the things he wrote about was about the faith. And here's a, here are some snippets from what he wrote about what he thought about the Christian faith. He says, nothing is to be holy ground consecrated to stationary faith, whether positive or negative. All fallow land is to be plowed up. So, what he's saying here is, it's, this is a metaphor, he's saying, I'm not going to just accept everything on authority, I'm actually going to think it through, I'm going to plow it up, you know, metaphorically, uh, plow the land up. Um, and he says, you know, Christianity, that is the religion of the Bible, is the only scheme or form of belief which allows you to do that. It's the only scheme of form or form of belief that allows you to disavow um, the kinds of um, holy ground or tabooed region where you can't ask questions about it. 
That was his, that was his uh, manifesto, and he says, here alone, all is free. And he followed through to, to a large extent on that. Now, he became a professor uh, first in the University of Aberdeen and then later at King's College London. While he was at London, uh, he and his wife, uh, uh, were, who was also a, a devout Christian, um, were part of the church there. Here, here's, here's what he says about the church he used to go to in London. There is in the street a Baptist who knows his Bible, even though he was a Baptist, and preaches as near it as he can, and does what he can to let the statements in the Bible be understood by his, by his hearers. And he says, in this sort of offhand way, we generally go to him when in London, though we believe ourselves baptized already. So in, in that last phrase, of course, is him saying that he, he, he doesn't necessarily subscribe to the view that, that infant baptism is ruled out. He was baptized as an infant. Um, but, but he says, where I go to the place where I hear the gospel preached clearly. That's what he says. Um, and uh, Maxwell was a thoroughly orthodox um, and evangelical Christian. Um, one of his biographers uh, from the uh, 1980s, a man called Tolstoy, uh, is completely puzzled in writing Ma Maxwell's biography. He talks about the fact that Maxwell and his wife used to exchange letters in which they would do sort of biblical expositions to one another. They would be discussing the scriptures in their letters um, because this was something that they held in common and they, this was important to them. But this man Tolstoy, you know, from his, from his secular background, can't imagine how, you know, a red-blooded uh, man, you know, writing to his lover would possibly talk about Bible study, you know? I mean, who here has, has married has, has ever done Bible study with their wife or husband? You know, there's probably quite a few. But, you know, from the secular point of view, it's hard for people to understand that in a scientist like Maxwell. But the same was true of many scientists of history. Um, one way to think about this is to, is to ask um, how did people over history think of, about science and the scriptures? And um, one person who's often considered to be the sort of father of modern science is um, Francis Bacon. Actually, strictly speaking, Bacon wasn't a scientist. He was more of a statesman philosopher. So he was, he was a big wheel in the court and, and in the government. Um, and he was quite a philosopher and wrote, and wrote several books of sort of philosophy. And in a certain sense, philosophy of science. So in a real sense, he actually, he wasn't so much the father of science as he was the father of the philosophy of science. But be that as it may, he was very into, his writings were very influential in encouraging people to study um, knowledge that was of practical use, knowledge that could be verified by experiments and that could give rise to technology which would then benefit humankind. This is sort of in summary of what Bacon was arguing for. And it was in part his, his emphasis on experimental knowledge that really um, made his influence so great because it's got a whole ball of, um, of modern science modern experimental science rolling. But what did he think? Well, um, he says this, let no one think or maintain that a person can search or, uh, too far or be too well studied in either the book of God's word or the good book of God's works. 
so for Bacon, in his age, and many people for, for hundreds of years thereafter, there were two books of God's words and works in which we could find and, and discover God. One was the book of God's word, the Bible, and the other was the book of God's works, which was nature, which we study um, and discover uh, about God and about the creation. Of course, this was not a new, this was not, that thought was not original to him. I mean, it dates back at least as far as Augustine, but the, the notion that God has revealed himself in, in both in verbal form in the scriptures and also in, in the form of nature. Later on, uh, in the 17th century, uh, Newton was another person who, of course, whose name we all know, uh, and this is the uh, frontispiece of uh, the Principia Mathematica, which was Newton's most famous book where he, where he explained uh, the uh, gravitation and, and his Newtonian dynamics. Here he is at, as, in sort of middle age. Uh, I, he looks pretty uh, gaunt in that picture, so he, I think he must have been a sweaty sort of uh, uh, gaunt sort of a person. Newton himself... Uh, became almost uh, godlike in his stature amongst uh, uh, um, scientists of the early 18th century uh, after 1700. His, his um, mathematical expertise was so great. Of course, he was one of the early members of the Royal Society, although he got into the Royal Society not by this famous work that we all think of, but really because he, he invented a, a, a telescope which bears his name and did some important work in, in optics, and that's what got him his fellowship of the Royal Society. But Newton was in many ways more interested in the scriptures and in, and in matters of faith than he was in science. Indeed, he, we now know that he wrote many more words, although not published, about the Bible than he did about, uh, about science. Um, he was another person for whom science and religion were not, you know, um, so different as to be all, always at war. Um, and science for him was by no means atheistic. Um, it, was, it was a part of a, a full picture um, that included um, his Christian faith. Now, um, in addition to that, it's possible to ask questions such as, if Christianity and science are so, you know, much at war and against one another, how come it was that science grew up and flourished in Christian Europe, in, in a society which was dominated by Christian thinking and theology and philosophy? And several people have thought very hard about that, particularly uh, I've given you a couple of references down here uh, to places where people have worked these, these questions through in some detail. And really, um, there are some good reasons why Christianity was in many ways the fertile intellectual climate in which science grew. And a big part of this is the Christian, or Judeo-Christian, strictly speaking, um, teaching about creation. Um, so for a Christian, uh, or for a, a, a person who accepts the Old Testament, for that matter, uh, creation is important because, for one thing, creation is a contingent choice of a rational creator. In other words, creation isn't just some, but what had to be, which was, after all, the, the, the way in which the Greek philosophers approached nature. They were looking for proofs that nature was the way it had to be because there was no other option. 
No, um, Christian theology teaches us that God chose, made free choices about the way his creation was to be, and that he did so in a rational way. Uh, the scriptures also teach that creation is good, and that means, means that it's worthy of study. A big problem that the Greeks had was that they weren't willing to get down and dirty and actually do experiments. They didn't think they were, those experiments were important, and they didn't think it was worth the time and trouble. But if, if creation is good, then it's worth looking at creation, studying it for what it really is. Um, Christian doctrine of creation teaches that creation and God are not the same thing. Creation is separate from God. So this is in contrast to a pantheistic view where, you know, basically the whole of, for, for, for many pantheists, the whole of creation or the whole of nature is, is sort of divine and, 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 and gods are everywhere or a god, the oneness is everywhere. And if that's the case, um, then uh, it's not so clear that one should be meddling with it. But, but uh, Christianity taught that, create, that the creation was separate from God and therefore uh, it was allowable to uh, address the creation and experiment with it. Um, the Bible also teaches that humans have a, a level of authority over creation and that is also an encouragement to study and, and to um, find out about that. And of course the Bible teaches that humans have rationality, which is a reflection of God's rationality, that, that humans are made in the image of God. And it was that belief that humans uh, have some of that spark of rationality that God has that uh, underpin much of the belief that the world was in the end going to be comprehensible. It wasn't obvious to people that the world was going to be comprehensible, but there was an encouragement there uh, to believe that it would be. And all of these are philosophical encouragements to empirical science, but they're also theological encouragements to empirical science. And um, so the argu argument can be put forward rather cogently, I believe, that one of the reasons why science grew up, maybe the reason why science grew up within a Christian uh, worldview and, and, and um, a society dominated by Christian theology and philosophy is because, indeed, that philosophy itself and that theology itself um, was fertile for science. Now, what happened um, throughout uh, the 19th century is that perspective that I've been talking about, the two books and the belief that nature is good and therefore we should study it and, and the, the rise of modern science as a whole, um, hit some stumbling blocks. And those stumbling blocks arose because people had uh, a, a belief that, roughly speaking, all knowledge is one, and therefore if, if God is true and if science is true, then what's going to happen in, in short order is there's going to be some convergence of those knowledges, and that in, in the not-too-distant future, so people thought in the 18th century, an early 19th century, uh, things are going to come together and I'm, I'm going to see that science is going to be proving my Christianity, you know, that there's going to be a, a sort of complete convergence of these things and all, all knowledge will somehow be hunky-dory and it will all become obvious. And that, it, it became clear in the, in the 19th century that this was not happening, you know. It became clear that, well, for one thing, the world is a lot older than a bishop Usher had said that it was, you know, when he did his calculation and came up with the creation being in October of, uh, you know, uh, 2002 B.C., whatever it is, 4,000, 
4004 BC. And um, so, so geology seems to be showing that the Earth's a lot older than, than we thought. Uh, there were all kinds of issues to do with uh, uh, biology. We were beginning to get some, to understand biology uh, better. And it became clear that the sort of simplistic convergence where, we, where science was somehow going to prove that Genesis you know, was literal wasn't actually happening. And, uh, of course, a big part of that was uh, ultimately the publication of uh, Darwin's Origin of Species, which showed that there might well be um, a, a, a clear-cut scientific mechanism by which uh, much of the diversity on Earth in, the, in biological forms came to be what it was. And, and this led to a disillusionment amongst scientists, some scientists, and a lot amongst the populace about the whole notion that there really are two books and that there, you know, really uh, uh, science is, is, is something which is, is and can be pursued for Christian purposes. And I believe that that disillusionment came about because, in part, people had not thought through the issue of what science is really about. What I, when I talk about science, I mean natural science. So sorry if you're a sociologist and you call your discipline social sciences. I'm not talking about you, okay? <laughs> um, Elaine. Um, uh, so I'm talking about the natural sciences. And, and I think there are some very important difference, differences between the types of knowledge we get from natural sciences and other types of knowledge. And I just want to talk a little bit about that because I think this helps to explain why we got this illusion, but it also it also helps to explain how we can understand how to get our, sort of extract ourselves in a certain sense from that disillusionment, how we can understand why it is that it doesn't seem to be the case that we're getting some radical um, uh, simplistic convergence um, of, of, of faith and science. So what are the um, characteristics of science? Um, first of all, science describes the world in terms of what it can discover, discover by experiment. And that means it describes the world insofar as the world uh, can be understood by its dependence on repeatable experimental tests. So if one person does an experiment at one time in one place uh, and gets a certain result, someone else should be able to do the same experiment, play, paying attention to the details of the setup and so on and so forth, at another time in another place and get the same result. That's repeatability. It's a very simplistic form, and we can explore that in more detail later if you like. But, but, but that's point number one. And I, I claim that is a characteristic of scientific knowledge. The second is a little bit harder to, to understand, but it, it's related to the first, and that is what I call it, it requires clarity. That is, the results of those experimental tests have to be understood in an, an unambiguous way. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the interpretation of what those results mean has to be uh, common to all observers, but, it has, but actually the, nature, the, the, the results themselves have to be um, understood by at least educated observers. And, and common to all observers. Now, I'll, I'll develop these thoughts a little bit more. But if you buy into those as being two of the most important characteristics of science, there are certain immediate consequences, and that is that not all knowledge is scientific in that sense. 
For example, there are many other disciplines with important knowledge uh, that don't have these types of characteristics. And here's some examples. History. History in the nature of things deals with unique events. So it's not going to be repeatable events. So when we're, when we're talking about history, we, we can't uh, adopt the kind of repeatable experimental test approach to it. The arts. Um, I would say large, in large measure the arts don't come under this rubric, rubric of scientific knowledge um, because it's not possible for rational observers necessarily always to agree on the results. I mean, think some things in, in the arts may be in a certain sense a matter of opinion. So. Um, there is no mathematical description of the artistry of Leonardo da Vinci, even though he was something of a scientist, okay? Um, and, and the arts cannot be understood either in a reductionistic way, in the kind of peace-building way that we use in the sciences. The humanities. Um, after all, science, in a certain sense, by the nature of its assumptions, its presuppositions, kind of rules out personality, rules out the, its ability to talk about personality from the beginning. Well, if it rules out persons, well, we can't really seriously, in my view, talk about the humanities, which are, after all, about humans, okay? Um, law is another example. And the reason why science can't uh, be, be applied directly to law, not, to, not that I don't mean there aren't, there aren't sometimes scientific evidences, but the law as a whole is in the business of coming up with decisions on a time scale. You know, the, the case has to come, an end, come to an end. There has to be a decision one way or the other. Science doesn't have that. Science doesn't have uh, that time scale that it has to, to follow. It can, it can have a measured judgment. It can, it can defer judgment. But the law cannot defer judgment, and it, and it cannot perform tests. And so in many ways, the law is an area of knowledge um, or human understanding where scientific approach doesn't work. And, and finally, I would say, interpersonal relationships or acquaintanceships are another area where the, you, know, you don't possess the kind of repeatability and clarity uh, that, is, that is needed for scientific tests. So, you know, if you talk to your girlfriend uh, along the lines of sort of, well, prove scientifically that you love me, you're not <laughs> going to get very far, okay? Um, and there's one other, and that is, I think that religious faith and the religious knowledge uh, that we possess also does not come under this rubric of scientific knowledge. But that's not to, that doesn't mean it should be ashamed of itself any more than any of these other disciplines uh, should be ashamed of, of one another. Sort of as an interlude, I wanted to point your, point your attention to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. No, this is not the bit about homosexuality. That comes a little bit later. Sorry about that. Uh, so I'm not, that, I'm not going to be that topical. No, this says that from the beginning of creation, uh, they are without excuse because from the beginning of uh, creation, God's invisible nature was known. And what does it say? God, what does it say? God's invisible nature is. Anyone, does anyone remember? His eternal power and deity. Look it up if you've got a Bible. God's Eternal power and deity, at least this is the RFC translation. Now, I don't think it, it, it's a coincidence or, or just an offhand qualification that Paul throws in when he says it's God's eternal power and deity that are known through nature when he's talking in, in the first chapter of Romans. I think that's very deliberate on his part. 
I think what we can know about God from studying nature is not God's love, is not God's personality, it's not the things that we learn from the scriptures, from Jesus Christ, from his example, from his saving uh, sacrifice. Those are not things that we can readily learn from nature. What we can learn from nature is God's eternal power of deity. We can learn that there is uh, a creator, a powerful creator, uh, a, a God of all. And so I think that while um, it is true that by studying nature we can find some things out about God, there, there are limitations to how much we can find out about God using the scientific method. And that's why I put most of religious faith and religious knowledge in the heading of non-scientific knowledge, just as these other, just as these other disciplines are. Okay, well, um, let me expand a little bit on the thoughts of um, uh, repeatability and take, zoom you back a little bit further than Maxwell uh, to Faraday, who was a uh, uh, scientist who began his work in the, in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, here is Michael Faraday, uh, a somewhat older Michael Faraday, in a woodcut uh, in his lab at the Royal Institution in London. Faraday. Uh, he's a fascinating uh, person in science. He has no less than five different effects or laws that are named after him. Uh, and if I call Faraday a physicist, um, uh, Bob Fay will wrestle with me and say, no, he's a chemist. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he was a scientist. Although, by the way, he never called himself a scientist. He always called himself a philosopher because that was the name, uh, that, that, uh, that was the expression that people used for scientists in, in those days. But the reason for bringing up Faraday um, is he said, he, he was fond of saying about himself that he had a tremendous imagination. He said, I could believe as much in uh, the Arabian Nights as in, you know, uh, the things of science, he said. But facts were important to me and saved me. And what he means there is experimental facts. So it was said of Faraday that as soon as he read about some new uh, result, perhaps in electricity or in chemistry, the first thing he would do is he would rush into his own lab and try to reproduce it. So I like to think of this picture as being, here's Faraday, he's just, he's just um, read a paper about some new phenomenon and he's gone into his lab to make sure that he can actually reproduce it. Um, so he says, without experiment, I am nothing. So Faraday is a, is a prime example of the importance of Experiment, repeatable experiments in science. Now, flash forward with me. Uh, in, 1989, I've been working in fusion uh, plasma physics for quite a while now. In 1989, in March 1989, there was this amazing uh, news that hit the airways that uh, Pons and Fleischmann were claiming that they were, were able to produce fusion reactions at room temperature, so-called cold fusion. And uh, this was, uh, here was I, I, I had, was spending my career in plasma physics, it was hot fusion, very, very hot fusion, hundreds of millions of degrees centigrade, and, and I said later it was as if an, a jet aircraft designer had read in the news one day that someone was claiming to have invented anti-gravity. I mean, obviously, if the claim was true, everything I was doing was a complete waste of time, okay? <laughs> but... If it, it was a claim so radical and so contrary to many of the uh, science of the day and the things that we thought we understood, uh, that it would take a, a lot 
uh, to persuade us about it. And, uh, well, this cartoon pokes a little bit of fun at it, but the main thing about cold fusion was it's really easy to do. All you need is a couple of palladium electrodes, a jar of heavy water, and a battery, and you could, make, you could do experiments yourself. And so a lot of people did. Within hours, people were, were trying to repeat their experiments. Uh, and within weeks, we already knew that there were some very serious problems with their experiments and that they were probably wrong. And within months, the scientific community at large had come to the conclusion that these claims were false. Well, how could we come to that tremendous sense of consensus so quickly? The answer is that experiments couldn't be repeated. You, know, you could not repeat those experiments in a different place and get the same answer. And actually, the claims of cold fusion also failed in respect to clarity, but I won't have enough, to, enough time to do that. Um, so, so those are two aspects of science. Now, another factor within uh, the um, within the time of the 19th century was this was a time when what I call scientism really got it got going. Scientism is the belief that the only meaningful knowledge is scientific knowledge. Now, you probably, uh, you know, haven't thought about it in those terms, but when, next time you hear someone talk about scientific knowledge on, you know, the TV news or whatever it is, recognize what they're doing. They're bringing this word, word scientific as a form of authority to back up whatever claim it is they're having. And um, there was a philosophical view uh, that got going in really probably the early 18th century that science is really the only worthwhile knowledge there is. And this came to a pinnacle in the early 20th century in logical positivism. But this view that science is the only uh, belief or the only knowledge worth having is not science. Scientism is not a finding of science. It's a philosophical position. It's a philosophical belief that's essentially independent of science. It's, it's, it's sort of meta-science, if you like. And by the way, I think it's clearly a belief that's false. It's, it's one that certainly most philosophers would shy away from these days. Nevertheless, its influence is still extremely great. So, what, so the reason for emphasizing this is that I don't want to be misinterpreted in what I've said before is implying that history and the arts and the humanities and et cetera don't have knowledge. They do have knowledge, that's what I'm saying. They have knowledge, but that knowledge is not scientific knowledge. But of course, in order to be able to say that, I have to disavow scientism, because if scientism says the only knowledge that there is is science, then if I say these things are not science, then that would imply that they weren't knowledge. But they are knowledge. And I'm saying that the Christian faith, like many of these other disciplines, is affirming true knowledge, and it's true knowledge which is rational. It's not irrationality, it's rational, but it's not scientific. Now, one of the reasons for bringing this up is that another aspect of what was going on in the 19th century was the development of a campaign, um, which was a very conscious ca campaign by a certain faction of the intellectual community to promote scientism because they believed this was a way to tear down and overthrow what they regarded as being the hegemony of Christianity and education. I mean, it's no mystery that in Europe and, and in much of the, many of the early colleges in the U.S., these were all religious foundations. And people in academia, some people, thought this was a bad thing. It was high time we got, we got away from this uh, and had 
uh, a view of knowledge which which threw off shackles, you know, Stephen Weinberg's shackles uh, of, of medievalism and, and came, up to, came up to date. And this, this was really gathering momentum in, in the mid-1800s. Um, and, you know, since this is uh, Cornell, I need to show you, I need to show a picture of, of your, your hero, okay? This was the, maybe not your hero, but at least the hero of the, of, and champion of scientism uh, in the mid and late uh, 19th century, Andrew Dixon White, um, uh, in whose barn we are now meeting. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, uh, he looks pleased to see us, okay? Uh, I won't go over this. You know more better than I uh, who, who uh, Andrew Dixon White was, and, and of course Cornell is in many ways uh, the monument of his and uh, Ezra Cornell's plan. And if you ever read this very, his wife's uh, most famous book, which is The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom, which, whose, whose very name, you know, is, is, is popularized um, across, across, the, uh, across the years, if you just read the preface to that book, he's quite upfront about what he's about. He says, what I'm about is dispelling all of this religious mumbo-jumbo and putting in place Effectively, scientism. Um, now, actually, of course, um, this was part of a campaign that he and, Co and Cornell were waging. In the first instance, it was a campaign to get, get the founding for Cornell, because as you all know, I'm sure, Cornell was very explicitly founded as a, a non-well, it's not quite right to say non-Christian, but, but a non-sectarian college, a college that was founded on scientific principles and not on religious, uh, not a religious foundation. So this was part of their very campaign. And uh, over the years, White um, wrote many pamphlets and, uh, and, and treaties about this in order to try to justify what he was doing. So in many ways, his work and the scientism that he promoted was part of a very conscious campaign uh, to undermine Christianity in uh, higher education, and by the way, an extremely successful one, as you all know. Um, so uh, that's another thing which was going on at this, at this time. And uh, Andrew Dixon White, I, I put forward, again, as a hero of scientism, um, now, I want to change topics now because I, I, I was told I shouldn't speak too long and I'm probably in danger of going on too long already. But I want to uh, move now from talking about some of the history and philosophy to some of the content uh, of science. You know, part of what Andrew Dixon White uh, tried to promulgate in his book, in many cases uh, fallaciously, and by the way, the scholarship of that work has been uh, over the years slowly dismembered by the historians, the people who have actually gone back and ch checked through his facts, many, many of which are simply wrong. But, but um, uh, the, one of the, for example, one of the uh, pa uh, parodies or, or uh, caricatures of the Christian position was that, okay, Christianity teaches that the earth is the center of the universe. Um, but what uh, the Copernican view shows us is that the Earth is not the center of the universe, it's not even the center of the solar system, uh, but, but that it's just a speck uh, in, in a much bigger cosmos. But actually, I mean, the first sentence is fallacious. Christianity doesn't teach that the Earth is the center of the universe. That's a Ptolemaic view. It's, it's, it's a Greek view. It's not, per se, a Christian or Hebrew view. Um, but there is in the Bible, a very clear 
view of cosmology that is put forward uh, by uh, the Bible, and that is that the universe had a beginning. You know, the first sentence of Genesis. Um, and throughout the first half of the 20th century, there was a big debate about this. Did the universe really have a beginning? Now, it's commonplace, of course, we, we now all, all very easily talk about the Big Bang. When I was an undergraduate uh, at Cambridge University, I had the privilege to be tutored by J.N. Nalika. Here he is, a somewhat older version. I couldn't find a young picture of him the way he would have looked when I, when I worked with him at Cambridge. But um, Nalika was a uh, co-worker, collaborator with Fred Hoyle. And Hoyle and Bondi and others developed what they called the steady state cosmology. The steady state cosmology said, yes, we know Hubble's constant says the, the universe is expanding, but actually uh, we think the universe is never left in steady state. It's in a steady state of expansion. And I can't, I'll never forget when I asked Nalika, who, who espoused this view and still tries from time to time to revive it, I said, well, why do you think that, you know, the, the steady state cosmology makes sense. This was, by the way, in the late 60s, early 70s, when we already had measurements of microwave background radiation. So there was already extremely good evidence that it couldn't possibly be in steady state. And he said, well, you know, if you look out and you think of the universe as being infinite in all directions, that, that has some kind of aesthetic merit to it. Well, if it's infinite in all directions in space, it should be infinite in all directions in time as well. And so just somehow it's aesthetically more pleasing to me, he says, that it should be, um, should be a steady state. Now, I mean, I, I don't mean to knock that. I, I'm not belittling the view because I think aesthetics and those kinds of metaphysical views are an important part of science. But it's a way of saying that here's an example of a case where if he, instead of rebelling against uh, the uh, Christian, the biblical view of cosmology, he would actually have been backing the right horse, at least as far as we now know, because the scientific evidence now for the Big Bang is extremely good. By the way, this horn here is, is somebody's idea of, of the first, you know, uh, of the evolution of the universe from the Planck epoch all the way to till today and the expansion of the universe. So, so there's an example of a, of a way in which, yes, um, the scriptures, an easy, uh, simplistic synthesis of scriptural and scientific knowledge didn't take place. But at a deeper level, there are resonances within the scriptures that have proved, proved out to be true uh, in, in our modern scientific understanding. And actually, uh, Stephen Barr is a, science, a physicist who's written uh, a book about some, of the, some examples of ways in which, um, unlike the situation in the mid-19th century, where everyone knew for certain, you know, that materialism was the answer and that, that uh, you know, that the mechanistic universe was what's going on. We're in a very different situation today. The materialist story is now really in many ways in tatters. Um, you know, for example, in the, mid, in the, in the late um, 19th century, everyone knew, you know, that determinism, you know, was, was the scientific view. We don't know that anymore. Quantum mechanics and, and, and chaos theory have taught us that there, you know, there really isn't any such thing as knowing all of the initial conditions and therefore being able to calculate things into the future and, and hence are giving rise to determinism. Um, actually, the formulation excluding purpose, 
which is, I think, actually part of the scientific method, is now not so clearly supported by science. It was Max Planck who said this, theoretical physics in its historical development has led to a formulation of physical causality, which he's talking in part about quantum mechanics, which displays a decidedly teleological character, teleological meaning something headed towards an end, a means to an end. Um, I think it's, uh, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the fine-tuning of the laws of nature and, and so-called anthropic uh, coincidences. Um, these, these, in my view, are, are things which at the very least are consistent with design. In fact, it's the consistency of those anthropo anthropic coincidences with design has led some physicists to postulate what seem to me the most unlikely and incredible types of theories, multi-universe, uh, theories which, which, which you know, are, are taken seriously, but part, I think, of the motivation for that is um, people don't like the idea that, you know, what we will see when we look out in the, in the universe around us shows some strong hints that actually some, someone actually had a plan. Um, the reductionist picture of brain and thought, um, even though it's still extremely popular, and I would say widespread, has had people seriously question it. For example, Roger Penrose has written some very interesting books talking about whether you can really describe uh, the brain and, and thought in reductionistic ways. So these are ways in which the content of science um, has, is now at a point where it, it seems to me not so uh, far and unreasonable uh, to say that science is no longer um, to be taken in this very atheistic way. So, uh, let me talk very briefly, just one, one view graph since time is running out, um, about the demographics of science. Um, for a long time, as a Christian uh, working in science, I had noticed that far from it being the case that scientists were underrepresented among the ranks of Christian believers, I noticed that they were quite strongly overrepresented. In other words, if a person was a Christian uh, in academia, chances were that they'd end up being an engineer or a scientist, not you know, not a someone from literature or history or something like that. And uh, that was just uh, at my own anecdotal observations for a long time. But then I stumbled across this book, you know, um, and. Uh, Robert Watsnow is a, is a Princeton University sociologist, and he cites in this book, uh, Struggle for America's Soul, some of these, some of these statistics that, were, that come out of uh, surveys of people in higher education. So um, they were asked uh, whether they were indifferent to religion or whether they don't believe in God, and he, here are some of the co compacted numbers. Uh, and this, I, I chose the sociology, humanities, and sciences. And what you see is that People are far more likely to be indifferent to religion if they're in the sociology as opposed to in the sciences, and far more likely not to believe in God if they're in the more uh, sociological or humanities areas than they are in sciences. So if, if the war um, between science and faith were the cause for unbelief, then what you would expect to see in these statistics is the exact opposite. You'd expect to see that scientists are the people that aren't persuaded that there is a God or who are totally indifferent to religion. But that isn't what, what's seen that amongst academics and probably um, outside. It is, in fact, scientists who are more open to belief, uh, Christian belief, uh, than uh, people in other disciplines. 
So let me come to an end, and then we'll, we'll have some time for discussion. Um, is science atheistic? Well, I perhaps not give you, giving you a clear answer on this. Let me say yes, but mostly no, okay? First, let me give you the yes side of it. I think there is a sense in which science's methods don't lend themselves to the discovery of a personal God. In that sense, perhaps, science is atheistic. But science's methods don't lend itself to an understanding of religious faith experience, uh, just as they don't really lend themselves to doing history or, or, or art or whatever else. So in that sense, perhaps, uh, the methods of science are atheistic. That's sort of partly of a yes. The second bit of a yes is that, I, that I will give you is that, that scientism is usually atheistic. But, but to equate scientism and science is a big mistake. I mean, it's simply a, uh, a misunderstanding of categories. Uh, scientism is not science, and by the way, it's also not a corollary of science. In other words, you can't deduce scientism from science. So scientism is usually atheistic. So there are two parts of maybe the yes answer, but I want to give you more predominantly the no answer. Um, because the, I believe those counterbalancing factors are much more, much stronger. And what I've talked about is that the pioneers of modern science, first of all, were predominantly Christians. Secondly, the Christian theological view of creation was in many ways the fertile soil in which modern science grew up. Third, I've mentioned that, that, that there are elements of modern science which point very much to a non-materialist uh, view and those are often more consistent uh, with Christianity, I would say, certainly than Enlightenment dogma and than Enlightenment materialism. Uh, and finally, I've mentioned that it's simply a fact of uh, sociology and demographics that Christians continue to be drawn to the sciences and to draw to the sciences in a certain sense more than they are drawn to the humanities. So, is there then um, a way that science is distinctively Christian. You know, um, in academic Christian circles, there is a, a sort of movement afoot amongst many disciplines to try to bring back into our academic disciplines some uniquely Christian perspectives. And this is happening in uh, philosophy, it's happening in some areas of history, um, and, and you know, there are people around the room who are trying to uh, uh, implement and bring in those kinds of Christian perspectives into their academic work um, in those types of areas. And I've often thought, I wonder if there's a uniquely Christian way to do science. And actually my quick answer is, I'm not quite sure that there is. You know, I don't think there's a Christian way to solve a differential equation. You know, I just, you know, you solve it or you don't, okay? Um, <laughs> And I also don't think that it's very profitable to bring, for, to imagine that we bring into science sort of external resources from, let's say, scriptural writings that will necessarily help us to do science better. I think history shows, and people have done this, of course, over, the, over, over all, all of history, and I showed Newton as being, being the example. But, but I think in general, it's very important that when we approach those two books, we approach them in the first instance on their own grounds, you know, on their, on their own terms. So we approach the scriptures on their own terms, but we also 
um, approach the book of God's works on, it, on its own terms. And so we, and that's what the scientific method is really all about. But, but, but my final thought is this, that having thought about that a lot, and having thought over some of the um, topics that I've talked about today, I came to a different conclusion. And it's this, that science is already, in a substantial way, Christian for exactly these reasons. And that in many ways, science is already closer to being Christian than it is to being atheistic. Thank you very much.